So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Pablo Frailuca, who is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at Princeton University. Today we're going to talk about um, Argentina and Peronism, and welcome to the show, Pablo. Hey, Lev. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm very glad to be here. Me too. Um, I should I should just say that I, I don't know a whole lot about Peron, and I'm not sure how much the audience knows. So maybe we could we could just start with the the basics. I hope it's not too boring, but you can tell us a little oh, bit no, about I don't. Yeah, who he was. And um I know he gets elected in the mid-40s. What's Argentina like before the election? And then how is he kind of a because you you wrote in a piece for um sidecar for New Life Review that he was a transformative, a transformative president. So in which ways did he transform Argentina? That's a, that's a really good question. So I'll try to, to explain it in a way that it's accessible for everyone. Uh, so on the one hand, we have, have the question about who Perón was, right? And then we have another question, which is like what was happening in Argentina in the mid-40s or even a little bit before. So Perón was a military. He was uh, trained as a military. He was sent to Europe, actually to the fascist Italy uh, after his first wife died. And then he came back to Argentina and worked as a military for a long time and took part in uh, in, in a coup d'etat in 1943. So just to give you a better picture, Argentina, after the Great Depression, after 1930, has a little bit more than a decade of what people call uh, decada infame in Spanish, which is... A metaphor to say that there were elections, but the elections were rigged by the conservatives, right? Before 1930, between 1916 and 1930, Argentina had like fair elections, the first uh, universal vote. I mean, voting is mandatory in Argentina. Uh, that ends in 1930. There is a coup in 1943. Perón takes part in that coup and takes part in the military government that emerges after that coup. And then in 1945, he, start, he starts having disagreement with the uh, with the president of, or I mean, the de facto president, right? The military who was running the, the, the military government. And the differences had to do with the fact that Perón, uh, he gathered a lot of power working as the labor secretary. Why so? Well, Argentina, after the Great Depression, after the 1930s, started producing a lot of local, a lot of basically consumer goods, but also some foodstuff products locally, products that were imported before. Argentina started producing those locally, mainly because like the European and, and the European countries and the United States were too busy dealing with the crisis. And later on, after 1939, dealing with the war, right? The Second World War. So Argentina has an emergent industry, has a kind of new working class that came from different parts of the country to Buenos Aires and other industrial centers. And then what Perón does as, as, as the Secretary of Labor is starting to intervene as a member of the state in the conflicts between the business and the businessmen and the, the, the workers. Basically, he starts mediating between 
what you would call capital and labor, right? So he gains a lot of uh, of power doing that, especially for unionists and for for a working class that had never been a protagonist of of of, of any kind of government of political movement in the way. Uh, he was inviting them to be. He he got a lot of political power, and that creates problems inside the military government because it's become for certain sectors inside the military. Peron is big. They, they start to see Peron as kind of a dangerous populist leader, which is curious because Peron in eighteen forty five he goes to the, the the Bolsa de Comercio, the the like the like the Wall Street of Buenos Aires and gives a speech that is very interesting where he says guys if we don't start redistributing some of the wealth we are creating if we don't increase uh, wages if we don't give these people living in the peripheries of of the cities some some benefits some social welfare they will become communists so we need a state that is more present that is like more uh, that that meddles more between capital and labor in order to improve the quality of life of this population and therefore avoid the rise of communism in in argentina yeah. his diagnosis was not completely wrong right until the emergence of what we now know as peronism socialists and communists had like a very strong influence among the working class in argentina they led a lot of unions they had like some political power the socialist party in argentina was one of the oldest uh, in the country founded in 19 in 1892 and they were quite popular not Anarchism anymore. Anarchism was super important in the end of 19th century and the beginning of the 20th. But by the by the 40s, I would say there were like socialists and communists who had uh, who had more power inside the working class. So that's where Perón comes from. He's a military. He kind of like what some of the things that Mussolini has done in 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 Italy in terms of like creating a corporate corporate state and mediating in the conflict between capital and labor, basically, which is what what fascism was doing among other many things in 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 Italy um and 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 he's proposing and trying to to increase the social welfare in in Argentina which is what he will do once he wins the elections in 1946 so 1945 conflicts between inside the military government Perón goes to jail and there is on October 17th 1945 there is a very massive huge demonstration from the working class in Argentina going to the Plaza de Mayo the main square in Buenos Aires city and claiming for Perón this is the foundational event of Peronism right it's the working class unorganized it's not the unions it's not the the it's not the leaders who 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 mobilize the the who mobilize the, the the working class. This is like workers from the peripheries of Buenos Aires, claiming for who they believe was their leader and was the guy who was protecting them from the abuses of the businessmen and 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 the and the owners of the factories. He gets released, and then in 1946 there is an election. Peron runs, and he runs against kind of a broad political alliance from like the conservative party to like the communist party that sees Perón as the new Franco or as the new Mussolini or eventually as a new fascist leader uh, that that was that might consolidate its power in, in Argentina. And they were afraid of that. Let's remember that 
it's, we are talking about 1946. The Second World War just ended. A few years before that, the Spanish Civil War happened and Argentina received a lot of the Republican immigrants from the civil, Spanish Civil War. So what they saw in Peron, it's not just, it's not crazy. I mean, it's something that you need to understand through the lens of the historical events that happened before that. Peron wins the elections by a very narrow margin. He finally wins. And one of the things that kind of like helped him won that election, or at least that's what he thinks and many historians as well, is that the uh, United States ambassador in Argentina, Braden, called to vote against Peron. And then he makes, Peron himself makes a political campaign out of that mm. and saying something like, this is... Argentina or the US, right? It's us or or, or, or the or the United States. Mm. So the imperialism gets this kind of like imperialist, anti-imperialist vibe, uh, which is kind of curious. And that's how he he runs for, for presidents and win the elections in 1946. So that's how Peronism or or the first Peron government starts. Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's really interesting. No, that's very, very clear. Um, although he does sound like he has complicated complicated politics and I'm kind of wondering oh, yeah. then what happens next so I know there's a right-wing coup which ousts him in 1955 but he's got nine years as president what kind of policies does he does he implement does he push for that's an interesting question so yeah so he runs for, uh, he, he takes office in 1946 and then he wins elections again in 1951 Yeah, in Argentina, the, the presidential term until 1994 was of six years that changed. And now we have like a four year term. But before that, it was a six years term. So he wins the, the, the elections again and in 1951, gets re, I mean, get retakes office or whatever in 1952. And then in 1955, you have the coup. But contrary to what happened in 1946, the second election he wins in he won in in, in 1951, he won by a very huge margin. He gets like more than 60% of the popular vote, which is a lot. Uh, so it's interesting. What he does is basically two things, right? On the one hand, he I don't want to say that he created the, the welfare state in, in Argentina, but in certain ways he did. He expands social welfare. The, 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 there is a huge rise in, in, in the real wages in Argentina, uh, especially between 1946 and 1949. Uh, so workers have more money on their pockets and they spend more money and they consume more and they get more integrated into the, the modern city. Let's put it that way. He creates a system of welfare for those who are not integrated into a formal job. Uh, he well, so so there is the the Fundación Eva Perón. You might have heard about Eva Perón. It was his wife. He she died in 1951, but so she was her his second wife. Uh, she died in 1951, and she was the one in charge of all the social policy. Let's say of the let's say of the government. There is a certain level of industrial development during these years. So so that's very interesting. The industrial share into like the, the 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 total economic activity in total the total gdp in argentina increases there so so there the, there are specific policies to turn argentina from like an agricultural exporter into like an industrial power some of them work some of them don't work that that well but but he tried and then on the other hand in terms of politics he does two things he was a very smart politician so on the one hand there is like a lot of unionists and former members of the communist party or even the socialist party 
that start to see Perón not as a fascist leader, but rather as the champion of the working class. Even with all the contradictions inside the Peronist government, they start to have sympathies uh, for Peronism during these years. So on the one hand, he kind of like caught or, or he convinced politically or ideologically a lot of people that that was the expression of a popular movement uh, in Argentina or a kind of like center left in Argentina. On the other hand, he's very harsh with his opponents. So they closed a couple of new newspapers from the opposition. He always he he, he tried he tries to persecute uh, political dissident dissidents both on the right but especially on the left. Right, communists get targeted during the Peronist gover governments, the two first Peronist governments. By the end, I mean by nineteen fifty four, even a little bit before that he starts having certain conflicts with the the church in argentina and with certain military government certain military sectors that are not super happy about the protagonism of popular sectors and of the working class in the government and that leads to the 1955 coup which is a coup celebrated by everyone but peronists in argentina or, wow, or wow. almost everyone but peronists can i just ask who are those Peronists, who are the hardcore base? So the hardcore base is the working class around the city of Buenos Aires, which is like, you know, Argentina has a very different demographic structure compared to the U.S. Almost a th third of the population lives in the city of Buenos Aires and its outskirts. Uh, so most of the voters of the original Peronist movement were working class members, uh, most of them, right? Mm -hmm. But these are not people who are actively involved in the Communist Party, or or are they? No, I mean some of them. So so for instance, there are some some unionists that were part of the Communist Party, and then then they get integrated into the Peronist Party. Uh, at the grassroots level, these are people who are. There is an excellent uh, book by by a, actually by a British historian who teaches at at Indiana Bloomington, Daniel James where he explains how Peronism was the first time, and, and this is like the workers uh, talking in like interviews and whatever, how workers for the first time in their lives felt that they had a voice, right? That someone was listening and that they felt emp empowered inside the factory, right? So they could, they have like these this, this unions and the unions have inside each of the factory delegates and these delegates were almost untouchable. So, so it's the first time that the working class in Argentina can stand up and talk against, you know, the businessmen and the, and the, and the, and the corporate leaders or whatever. And even so it's not just that the wages are better, it's that, that they feel more empowered. They feel like proper human beings in a way. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm guessing that obviously capital, the business community doesn't, you know, they, they cheer the coup, they celebrate the coup. But um, I'm guessing that also means that the, the rural or peasant populations were not excited about Perón because you're sort of saying everybody else is celebrating the, his downfall. Is that right? Well, you mean the rural populations? Yeah, I'm sort of wondering. I, I guess capital wouldn't like him, but how do the rural poor feel about him? 
Well, I mean, so so Perón creates the first like legal status or, or legal, you know, recognition of of the of the rural worker. The so you don't have that many people living on the countryside in Argentina. The property mm-hmm. of land, especially back then, was super concentrated. Mm-hmm. So and and one of the things that Perón's Perón does to 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 improve or or to shift the 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 balance of power within like industri- industrial uh, companies and like the agricultural sector is that he control he creates an institution that controls all the foreign trade of Argentina. So what he's basically doing is taking part of the rent that was appropriated by the rural landowners. But we are not talking about like small, you know, small peasants. We're mm-hmm. talking about like huge landowners, and he, the state buys what they produce and then sells that uh, abroad. And the difference, instead of being captured by by the, the, the landowners, it's captured by the state to use that money to, you know, uh, create special fiscal and financial stimulus for for the industrial sector. So uh, the landowners hates him. I mean, the landowners in Argentina were, especially back then, now that changed a lot, right? But back then, they were the representatives of the old Argentina, right? The Argentina that was exporting grain and beef to the rest of the world. And those sectors are the ones that hate Peron the most. I see. So maybe you could talk a little bit about, this is, you know, it wasn't totally clear on the history. It's 15 years of dictatorship but then sometimes there are elections what what does this period from the 1950s um to the early 70s look like well okay so so i i, I explain it i i, I try to explain it as, as, as <laughs> it must be messy yeah. it, it, it's, it's not easy so what yeah. happens after the coup is that Brown has to run away he goes to paraguay first and then he will end up in spain which is curious right because spain was still under franco uh so Perón leaves the country because he wants to avoid like a what like a bloodshed bloodshed like a yeah uh, uh, a bloodbath yeah a bloodbath a bloodbath sorry uh he wants to avoid the civil war basically so he leaves and then what happens is that peronism gets pros- gets banned from argentine politics right so between 1955 and 1958 you have a military dictatorship even mentioning the name of Perón or of Eva Perón was considered a crime, right? Peronists are persecuted everywhere. They go to jail. They have to go to exile. It's quite harsh. And and, and it's especially hard on the working class at the factory level, right? Not just unionists, but it's like the capitalists gaining control again over uh, over the factories. Mm-hmm. But then you have elections, right? In 1958, there is an election. From DC wins the election. He comes from the other big party. It's called the Union Civica Radical. The Radical Civic, Civil, Civic Union would be like the obvious translation, but I don't know if that works. In any case, what Perón did in 1958 is make a political agreement with Frondizi, and he calls Peronists to vote for Frondizi. That doesn't end up well because from this, he does some stuff with oil that Peron doesn't like. It, it's it's way more complicated. But basically, between 1955 and 1976, what you get, or 1973, I would say, you get what some sociologists in Argentina have called an hegemonic tie. So you have 
two social, political, economic groups fighting against each other without being able to impose over each other, right? So on the mm-hmm. one hand, you have the alliance between like Peronism, the working, like the industrial and urban working class and certain industrial leaders who kind of believe in developing the country through expanding the manufacturing capacity and expanding the industrial capacity. And then on the other hand, you get the landowners, you get some members of of the of the church, you get most of the military or, or the armed forces uh, fighting against Peronism, fighting against that alliance. And they they neither of them can like impose over each other. In 1973, Perón comes back to Argentina. Why so? Well, for the first time, the military realized that he's the only one, or he might be the only one, uh, able to like calm down the political situation in the country. Why? Because there was a coup in 1966, and from the end, from then on, what you will see, and this is kind of a regional momentum. It's not just Argentina; it's the whole Latin America and even other parts of the world especially after the Cuban Revolution, you get a kind of new left in Latin America. And part of that new left believes in guerrilla movements and begin, and believes in political violence as a mean to transform Argentina in a revolutionary way. Some of this new left is Peronist. Some of this new left is like what you would call Marxist or Leninist or whatever. But in fact, what happens is that you start having more and more political violence in everyday life in Argentina. That violence comes from the left, obviously comes from the right as well, right? So, for instance, the two, one of the biggest guerrilla movement called Montoneros, which is identified as Peronist, they, they, they're let's say their presentation in public, it, they kidnapped the guy who orchestrated the, ca- the coup in 1955 mm. and they kill him, right? It's Aramburu. So that's how they present uh, themselves uh, to the public opinion. Obviously, Argentina in 1966, 1967, 1973, almost 20 years on exile, he comes back and he needs to deal with the internal conflict inside what could be considered Peronism, but it's like, it's very hard to define, right? Because now you have identified as Peronists, you have like the working class unions, you have guerrilla movements, you have industrialists who want Mm. to develop Argentina through like, you know, the industrial development, basically. Mm -hmm. You have like a you have conservative Catholics, you have like left wings who believe that that Peronism is the way to socialism. It's a very weird political conundrum. Yeah. And obviously Peron fails in 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 responding to the expectations that all these different groups put into him, right? So famously in the demonstration of May the first, the working class labor day 
everywhere except well it's not in the u.s but outside the u.s it's the labor day the international working class or workers day uh, there is a huge demonstration and peron tells the montoneros the guerrilla movement to leave the plaza de mayo he said something that who are these like kids these teenagers who come from the university and then they 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 try to impose foreign ideas into what peronism really is and they are like fighting against the real working class so after that montoneros go back goes back to clamb- to to clandestinity and and they keep working as a guerrilla movement in the underground but now during a democratic government a mm. few months after that peron dies and then everything collapses so from mid 1974 to the coup in 1976 you have his third wife isabel martinez de peron who was the vice president she took office she takes office and and the situation goes out of control argentina went into a kind of a first hyperinflation not now we are used to inflation but back then it was it was a lot so inflation goes up political violence violence goes up montoneros kill uh the leader of like the 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 they like the union of the unions it's called the central general de los trabajadores like the 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 union that how, how can i say this that oh, encompass all the different sense. unions yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah they killed two of their leaders at the same time there is something called the the three a's the alianza anti-communista argentina which in english would be like the anti-communist uh, argentine alliance orchestrated by the state and certain uh, trade unions to fight against the, the the left-wing peronism so the country gets dragged into the flames of political violence and then in 1976 a coup happened a coup that it's it's maybe the, the most famous of, of the coups in Argentina because it's also the most violent the bloodiest and it ends up with it, it ends up sorry with with more than three Three, uh, 30,000 disappeared and, and uh, people in, in the country. Most of these disappeared people, and I, I'm pretty sure that the audience might, might be familiarized with this because there is a very famous movie now that it's running running for the Academy Awards, the Argentina 1985. So if you haven't seen it, I, I strongly recommend it to... to I, I strongly recommend the movie. The movie is not about the dictatorship itself, but it's about the trial against the military junta that ran the dictatorship. Um and they so so during the dictatorship they target especially working class leaders right it's not a dictatorship I mean they they did target like uh, students university students high high school students who were organizing and 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 and, and yeah I'm taking political action but they they are especially interested in in working class leaders and after that Argentina gets kind of like a first round of neoliberal reforms uh, between especially between 1976 and 1981 yeah we recently last weekend we watched um argentina 1985 it's it's amazing um and i I should say we are part of the reason i mean i'm interested in argentina um just because i am in the history but we're also going to buenos aires in in a month and I've never been before. Oh, that's great. Yeah, and so I want to actually, at the end of this, and you can start thinking about it now, I want to ask you about um, maybe some books that you think I should read before the trip. But I'm going to ask you first to do something which I know that academics are not supposed to do, and I'm going to ask you a, a counterfactual. What if the 
coup doesn't happen, the dictatorship doesn't happen, and if, well, Perón's dead, but if somebody that Perón trusts takes power after his, his death, um, and not his third wife, but, but someone who's going to be around and, and more stable, what's different? How does the outcome look different in Argentina? That's a very hard question. I mean, for sure, you could say that what Argentina lacked in the 90s and, and the early 2000s, and even now, it's like a, a political generation, right? A political generation literally disappeared in Argentina, like unionists, uh, politicians, like people who were between like their 20s and their 40s during the dictatorship, and they were not there to run the country in the 90s and the 2000s, right? So it's every, every society creates its own like political cadres and, and leaders and officials and whatever. Are, those disappear in Argentina. So especially those who are more committed to like political action and to certain values or whatever. So if you want to understand what happened in the 90s in Argentina, it's very important to take into account that the political generation was killed or exiled during the dictatorship. That's for starters. What else could have happened? It's very hard to tell because like the political situation and the violence, the political violence was really there on the street and there was no clear end point for that. I'm not sure what could have happened, especially because it's a moment where it's not just Argentina, right? You have Pinochet in Chile, you will get Stroessner in Paraguay, you will get different kind of, another dictatorship in Uruguay, well, the, the, the dictatorship in Brazil that lasts until the eight of the the 80s so it's a it's a regional context it, it would be hard even if argentina kept its democracy mm. in the context of the operation the condor operation it would be i don't know unimaginable to, to to figure a different a different outcome but other than that the economic situation was changing a lot right remember that in 1973 we get the first oil crisis we will get the second one in 1979 and then the financial crisis of 1982. So most of Latin American states get got bankrupt, right? Uh, so it's a, I, maybe I, I finally became an academic. I don't know if I can answer that question. <laughs> no, uh, your, answer, your answer is really interesting. You know, one thing I, I'm thinking about is in the United States, I mean, I was just listening to this podcast by this um He's he's like a he's a libertarian economist named Tyler Cowen. I I quite mm -hmm. like his podcast. He's very popular. But what struck me is he was having a conversation the other day with um, Brad DeLong, whose new book came, just came out, Slouching Towards Utopia. And yeah. in it, in it, you know, Cowen basically says something to the effect that you know, well, well, didn't Chile work out okay? In other words, you know, Pinochet might have been rough but you know chile turned out to you know became a developed country um you know i don't know how much you know about chile but but if you do you can you can speak to that but it struck me that um people don't usually talk that way even the the right doesn't usually talk that way about argentina's military junta or dictatorship so i'm wondering why you think that is I mean, you know i, I clearly the, it's a, it's a, yeah what do you think it's kind of like a, a, a misleading statement uh, because Chile becomes more developed, especially during the 90s, not during the dictatorship. Actually, you know the story, right? Like Pinochet takes power. He takes a couple of years to like eliminate any kind of like dissent inside, inside the, the armed forces. Uh, and then he brings in the famous or infamous Chicago boys, right? 
the Chicago Boys were this group of like Chilean economists who, after graduating in Chile, were sent to the University of Chicago to study with like Milton Friedman and some Harberger and some other people. Uh, and then they come back to Chile, and in theory, that's what that, that's how the story goes. They implement neoliberalism in Chile, right? Uh, it's like what Naomi Klein described in the Doctrine Shock, what uh, many mm-hmm. more like intellectual and uh, whatever. The story is well known. However, in 1982, Chile goes through a huge financial crisis. All the Chicago boys gets kicked, got kicked out of the government. And then more nuanced approaches arrive to Chile, right? People, even the dictatorship, like flexible. I mean, they they, they change their, their economic ideas a little bit. So Chile only starts like going up in the 90s. I would say it's not, it's not an, the outcome of the dictatorship. Of course, it's always easier and let's easier. I, I, I don't know how to say it. it's it's ironic, but but it's easier to do economic policy when you don't have to face elections, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for obvious reasons, like you don't have to, you don't care about how people get frustrated if they don't get their their income rising uh, immediately, or if there are like political disagreements, you don't need to deal with them. So, in a sense, uh, political dictatorships allows you to pursue uh, certain economic policies without thinking about the consequences, the social consequences. I don't think that's the Chilean case. You could make that argument for China nowadays and the growth of, of, of the Chinese economy partially as a consequence of, of not having to deal with democracy and not having to deal with opposition parties or not mm-hmm. having to deal with people's disagreement. I don't think the the, the, the Pinochet economy was that, su- that successful. Chile became super successful after the dictatorship when the the... the Kind of like left wing coalition wins the elections, and and they start growing there. And now Chile is one of the countries with the the, the highest GDP per capita in Latin America, which is which is very amazing. Uh, but even though that kind of like political, um, it, it, it was a completely different context. Chile was way poorer than Argentina in the seventies. Chile was not an industrial country or not a significant industrial power in the 70s. Argentina was way more egalitarian than Chile or even Brazil for that case being. So the the baseline was different. I, it's it's very hard to compare. And I, I I don't think that you could say that that Chile got better because of what Pinochet did. It's 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 misleading. And it's not factually right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you mentioned Brazil and I as you were describing Perón, I was wondering if, and you can tell me if this is way off because it maybe it probably is, but is a close is the closest analog to a contemporary politician maybe maybe Lula? It's a good, it's an interesting question. You know, back in their time, Perón was compared to Chetulio Vargas, who was the president of Brazil for a long time. Mm-hmm. But in a way, I would say, yes, He, both of them are, in a way, the champions of the working class. Both of them been president for a long time. Both of them were partially responsible for a huge unsustained economic growth that have that had spillover effects over the rest of the society. Although there are obvious differences. Lula is not a military. He's actually from the working class in Brazil, right? 
he was he was born in the northeast then he migrated to the sao paulo periphery he worked in the automotive industry and he 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 became like a unionist and and that's how he got into politics it's so their personal stories are different i would say the partido dos trabalhadores lula's party it's different from peronism in the sense that peronism was something created by peron in a way from the state although it had like grassroots support there was like no institutional structure he kind of created that structure mm. in the case of Lula is different right the Partido dos Trabalhadores is the political party so in Brazil you have during the dictatorship the emergence of two big left-wing uh, groups one is uh, the CUTI like the the union the union center or the the, 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 the big union that encompasses all the, the other unions uh, and then you have the the peasant movement, the movement, the MCT, Movimento dos Trabalhadores Sem Terra, the landless uh, workers movement. Both of them are influenced by the Communist Party. Both of them have like strong strong influence from the left wing side of the Catholic Church. You know, it's a thing in Latin America. The, the, curas del tercer mundo, you know, these priests that are very involved in like helping the poor and going to the communities and organizing people, etc. So, and and the Partidos Traballadores is like the synthesis of the union and the peasant movement, and they create the party, right? So when Lula first runs for election in 1989, and he's really close to win, if you read the political projects and ideas underpinning his his candidacy they were like super far uh, super left wing right mm-hmm. after that and after like the 10 years that go between he losing the election in, in 1989 and he then he winning by the end of i think it's 1989 in those 10 years lula moderates himself in many ways and that makes him more likely to get elected, which finally happens. But the Peronist party being built from a kind of like a top-down uh, mechanism or through a top-down mechanism is different from the PT, the Partido dos Trabalhadores, mm. which is way more grassroots, I would say. Uh, so that's how it's different. In the end, and that's a more interesting question maybe for political scientists or, or someone else, It's it's interesting that in any case, leaders became super important, and neither Peronism or nor 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 the PT could re- find a, a proper replacement for them, right? Because Dilma mm-hmm. won the election, but then then he she had to face the impeachment, and when Lula couldn't run because he was put in jail unfairly, if you ask me, um, he could uh, they, they couldn't find a, a candidate right uh, or or at least a competitive one. Adachi ran, but he lost the election against Bolsonaro, and we know what happened after that. So yeah. so it's similar, but there are certain differences, I would say. Yeah, no, that's helpful. As I told you, we we're gonna go down in early April to Buenos Aires, and um, I'm ex- I'm excited to meet people, talk with people. If somebody tells me that they are a a Peronist today. What do I make of that? How, what, what do I make of their politics? So right now there is the the, the coalition running running the country, basically encompass whoever could be considered Peronist. I mean, you have 
huge variety of Peronisms right now as as they were in the 60s and 70s. And it's kind of like an empty signifier or something. So I would ask them what they think about Cristina Fernandez de Kirchner. And then based on what they think about her, I would place them maybe on the left wing of the Peronist party or on the right wing of the Peronist party. Cristina Kirchner being on the left side. If you want of the Burmese party. That's a very schematic and simple characterization, but I think it could help you navigate that complicated world of Peronism. Mm-hmm. And so somebody tried to kill her recently. Who, who yeah. tried to kill her and why? Well, I mean, obviously the, 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 the investigation is still going on. It's hard to tell. So the guy who actually tried to kill her, it's a random guy or so it seems. However, he expressed in the past sympathies for the kind of like ongoing or emergent right wing uh, politician. Who's, it's kind of like a Bolsonaro of sorts. He's called Javier Milei. And, 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 and you could kind of like connect him with Trumpism. And, 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 and so, so it's clear for, for American listeners. And uh, so even if he's not, or, or no one ha, ha, has ever proved so far that he's connected to, 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 to this, this political leader, Millet, he did express sympathy for like this, this far right libertarian, uh, uh leader. Uh, why did he decide it? It's, I, you know, it's hard to tell. Uh, it didn't happen. I think we were very close to, I mean, it's, it's curious because it didn't happen. And then we kind of forget that that happened. And like, it's mm. not in the news anymore. And no one is talking about that anymore. However, it could have been a disaster. I mean, because she's still one of the most important leaders for, I would say like 25 or 30% of Argentines. She is like the, the, the representation of what it's good in politics for another 70 or 60%. Maybe it's not, but you could guess what happens if you, kill the leader of like a 30% of the country, right? Yeah. So I don't know. The the, the close or, or the closer example I could think of it is when 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 Gaitan, a political leader, was killed in Colombia in 1948. And after that you get like 40 years of political violence. Wow. Uh, that wow. that's still going on in Colombia. So so I, I think we were lucky in a way that that it didn't happen because because it could I mean I, I cannot even like think about the, the, the possible consequences of such a such a terrible thing. Wow, really very close to that happening. So yeah. um yeah I just want to uh, ask a couple more questions just to to wrap up. So I guess the, the, the important question for me is you know, what what should I be reading before I go? Do you have a, a book that I should read? It can be about contemporary history. It can be about the history of the country as a whole. What do you think I should read? Uh, if you're interested in like Peronism and the history of Argentina between, I would say, the 40s and the, the late 70s, early 80s, I would definitely go with the book I mentioned before by Daniel Shames. The book is called Resistance and Integration. Okay. It's a very smart book one of the best books I've read on Peronism. If you want to read something newer that it's in English, I would have to think about. Uh, I can send you a reference later, but mm-hmm. I, I, I should think about something that is written in English or even translated to English. I'm also interested in, you know, you used to hear like as rich as an Argentine, right? And so you all hear all these stories a hundred years ago. 
Argentina was one of the wealthiest countries in the world, and then it kind of falls yeah. apart. I'm sort of wondering if yeah. there's a good economic history as well. Yeah, well, so the idea that Argentina was a great power and then it came down, it's misleading us again. I mean, there uh-huh. are like new research showing that, yeah, Argentina was rich by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. But if you measure the number of schools, the the the, the number of um, what economists could call uh, uh, human capital, and uh, et cetera, in Argentina, it was completely different from, from the US or even Australia or Canada or other countries that ended up being developed countries. Then I would say that it's, so the simplistic narrative is that Argentina was rich and then Peronism came and like, then the country was bankrupt or something. That's the kind of like right-wing narrative in Argentina. I think it's 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 misleading. It's wrong, basically, factually, because the the, the exports in Argentina were going down way before than that. Because uh, I don't know. I think uh, until 1974, Argentina had like a GDP per capita that was okay. It was a kind of an egalitarian country. If you measure the, the, the Gini index, which is the index that measures inequality, Argentina was in the in, in the early 70s was almost as equal as a, like a Sweden or even Canada or, or some other developed countries. It was of course not as rich as the US or, or Germany, but but it was but it was a rich economy. If you measure Argentina vis-a-vis any other Latin American countries in the 19, in the early 1970s, Argentina had like more cars per capita, more TVs per capita, more you name it. I mean, the, the the wages were higher. So if there was a moment when the country was, pardon my French, was screwed, that happened uh, in the mid seventies, I would say, especially with the military dictatorship. Yes, I mean, I guess I'm wondering. You're at you're at Princeton. Um, I've now just told you two, I've just asked you two questions about things that turn out not to be true, but they're, you know, they're, they're long-standing, I guess they're myths. I'm wondering, this seem, these seem to be myths that are easy to puncture, right? Like they're, it's empirical, what you're saying. So do you run across, I mean, clearly I run across the myths. Do you run across the myths even at a place like Princeton where people are are able to say things which are just not true, but sort of everybody takes them to be true? I ca- I can give you an example. So in the US and in the Anglophone world, it's very normal to refer to what happened in Argentina during the 70s and many other Latin American countries. I'm sure you have heard the term as a dirty war, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, so a couple of years ago, Constanza, she's she, she, she's also a PhD student here from Chile and I wrote a piece for, for Jacobin, basically saying you cannot use the term dirty war to refer to Argentina or for the case being for any Latin American countries. And there are many reasons why you shouldn't. First of all, because there was no war. I mean, there were not like two sides fighting against each other. It was like the state exerting like state terrorism against certain sectors of the population without any trials, without following any rules. Like for Christ's sake, in Argentina, they kidnap babies and they they, they torture like pregnant women. Uh, so that that's that's not dirty. That's 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 you know that's a slaughter. So on the one hand, there is no war, 
and but but also if you talk about the dirty war and you are in Argentina, you are clearly reproducing the arguments that the military used to justify themselves after the dictatorship, right? They were like, okay, this was a war. We were fighting against this enemy, uh, this enemy that was like, you know, the international communist uh, alliance against the, the the Christian values of Argentina. So what we did, we did because it was a war, right? So whenever people keep talking about dirty war, I mean, if you use the term in Spanish, you are clearly not on the right. You are like on the side of the military, wow. right? <laughs> so, and people keep using the term here without any kind of like self-conscious. And, what is even like weirder? I mean, sometimes you know the the, the editors when you publish, publish a book, they 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 want to get like catchy titles or sexy titles. But but even professional historians use the term. Even Argentinian historians being here use the term mm-hmm. without any kind of critical reflection. And that's that's just not right. And I, I do think that we need to stand up and say something, even if you're like PhD students and not like tenure professor somewhere. Uh, I think that's important because it's like you're basically making a, an offense to all the people who died during the dictatorship. And, and I don't know, I think, that, I think that's a clear example of things that you need to stand up and say, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing. I think it's like being ethically responsible as a historian.